I am by no means a world traveler. I went to Quebec once with my high school global education class. I also did a week-long radio broadcast on the sandy beaches of Jamaica early on in my radio career. That's about it. Other than that, I go to Disney World and Arizona occasionally. I've never been to France or England or Japan. I've never rediscovered my Scandinavian roots in Norway or Finland. I've looked at Mexico from Arizona. I used to party in Canada. Anyway, you get the idea. So I can't pretend to know squat about the great country of Australia. Or is it a continent? Is it also an island? What? It's all three? Wow. I've heard things both good and bad. I have a cousin, Kelly, who lives there. She seems to enjoy it. Just to get it out of the way, here's a comprehensive list of things I know about Australia. Melbourne natives Men at Work taught me about Vegemite sandwiches in their hit 1979 song, Down Under. Coincidentally, I also learned that women glow and men plunder. Hopefully this song will get stuck in your head now and dislodge itself from my brain where it has resided the last few days. The movie Mad Max showed me what a dystopian Australia would look like. Having not seen Australia through my own young eyes, I assumed that that was what Australia looked like all the time. Finding Nemo revealed the beauty and majesty of Sydney Harbour and the Sydney Opera House. Crocodile Dundee showed me what a real knife looked like. It's also where some amazing people and products originated. Ugg Boots, Kylie Minogue, Thor, and his lesser-known but equally handsome Hemsworth brothers, ACDC, In Excess, Jet, Margot Robbie, Steve Irwin, Hugh Jackman. Oh, and we have Australia to thank for a little thing called Wi-Fi. I know that Australia is known for its wealth of bugs and animals that will not hesitate to kill you. Koalas and platypus are fun, and they're well-known. We have kangaroos at the Detroit Zoo. Those guys are awesome, but I'm pretty sure a roo could and would do some damage to you. Australia is home to the box jellyfish, a.k.a. sea wasp, or fire medusa. There's the most venomous snake in the world, the taipan. Saltwater crocodiles, as well as both brown and tiger snakes. Blue-ringed octopus are small creatures that pack a punch. The sting is often fatal, causing your body to shut down, becoming increasingly paralyzed and losing the ability to breathe. There's no known antivenom. Neat. Then there's the equally ugly and deadly stonefish, as well as Australia's own version of the black widow. Known as the redback spider, these guys are found all over the country. The good news? They've had an antivenom since 1956. There's also antivenom for Sydney funnel-web spiders. And while they aren't as deadly as the redbacks, these guys like to hide in your shoes and can survive underwater. Also, there's great white sharks to worry about. So between Mad Max, deadly aquatic animals, and rock and roll, I've always looked at the outback as a mysterious, rough-and-tumble, exotic location that if I were to visit, I would most certainly meet my demise. But, have a great time before I met it. Side note, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention two of my favorite horror movies which came from Australia, Wolf Creek and The Babadook. Both, not for the kiddos. So I've admitted that I don't know nearly enough about the amazing country slash continent slash island 
of Australia. This is embarrassing to me because it appears that I have at least a handful of listeners there. It's because of you awesome Aussies that I decided to dive into a few strange stories from the outback. Episode 16, Trouble Down Under, Part 1. Over the next two episodes, I'll bring you three strange tales from the country with the longest golf course at 850 miles long, the longest fence at over 3,000 miles long, more camels and sheep than people, and an aboriginal culture that's been around for between 40,000 and 60,000 years. We'll start with the most recent story which took place in August of 2016. The Tromp family is your stereotypical hardworking family from Sylvan. Sylvan is a town just east of Melbourne along the southern coast of Australia. Mark, 51, and Jacoba, 53, run an earth-moving business and a berry farm where all three of their adult children work, usually seven days a week. The Tromp kids consist of Rihanna, 29, Mitchell, 25, and the youngest, Ella, who at the time was 22. On Monday, August 29th, the entire family piled into Ella's silver SUV and drove off towards New South Wales. 20 miles into the trip, Mom and Dad realized that Mitchell had brought his phone along with them, going against their wishes to leave all technology back at home. They were afraid it could be used by someone to track the family, so they made him toss it out the window and continued on their way. To where, you ask? I'm not sure they even knew. The Tromps drove through the night, ending up near Bathurst, almost 500 miles from their home. Mitchell, who appears to have been the most with it at the time, had seen enough. He left the rest of the family at 7 a.m. to return home. The remaining four Tromps then headed east towards a popular tour spot known as the Genelin Caves, near the Blue Mountains. While there, the sisters Ella and Rihanna stole a car and bailed on Mom and Dad. By this time, on Tuesday, August 30th, the family was reported missing to the authorities. Police entered the home and found piles of financial documents, cell phones, passports, and credit cards. It appeared to them that the Trump family had left in a hurry and were looking to stay off the grid. Ella and Rihanna drove the stolen vehicle back south, 117 miles to the city of Goulburn. It was there that the pair reported their parents missing. After that, they inexplicably split up at a gas station. Ella, the youngest daughter, felt the need to go back home and feed her horses. Rihanna was all like, yeah, nah, and crawled into the back of a Ford F-250 belonging to a gentleman named Keith Whitaker. Keith was driving for a bit when he recalled feeling something kick his seat. There, laying on the back seat flooring, he found Rihanna in an almost catatonic state, unresponsive and unaware of her own name. After a call to police, she was taken to Galburn Hospital. By the end of Tuesday evening, Ella returned home to find her family's name in the news, as well as a group of confused police officers in her home. On Wednesday morning, August 31st, after taking an over 500-mile train trip from Sydney, Mitchell returned to the Trump home. While still a bit confused, police found the siblings to be reasonably unaffected mentally. Mitchell and Ella gave the police as much information as they knew, which wasn't a whole lot. The Genelin Caves were searched by police, but there was no sign of Mark or Jacoba. 
Rihanna was being held under psychiatric care at the hospital in Goulburn. Little did anyone know, the parents had left the caves and were driving back southwest towards the town of Wangarata. Wangarata. Hopefully I'm saying that right. Wangarata. Wangarata. Once there, Jacoba Trump left her husband and used public transportation to travel back northeast towards the town of Yass. Mark stayed behind. Wednesday evening, a young couple was driving in Wangarata when they noticed someone tailgating them. Nervous, they pulled over and then watched the trailing vehicle do the same. The driver got out of the silver SUV and ran towards them, stopping just before reaching their car. He stood there for a while, staring at them, and then walked off into a wooded park, not having said a word. There was no doubt it was Mark Tromp. Police searched the park but found nothing. Mark then broke into a motel room at Miller's Cottage Motel and slept. By Thursday, Mitchell and Ella, as well as family and friends, were growing very concerned for their parents' safety. Mitchell appeared live on a news program asking for help. Yeah, it's a pretty tough time. Uh, nothing I've sort of ever dealt with before, but um, I've had a lot of family support um, around me lately. And um, yeah, hopefully some good comes out of this and my dad will come home and be safe and well. Can you shine any light on or perhaps explain why he may not want to be found? Because he's, he's scared that people are after him. He's, he's not in a good state of mind. On Thursday afternoon, a Yass local found a woman wandering around town in an agitated state. She was taken to the hospital in Yass before being moved to nearby Goulburn to be with her daughter, Rihanna. Both received continued mental health treatment. It was now Saturday, five days since Mark Tromp loaded the family into Ella's SUV and no one had a clue as to Mark's whereabouts. Until he was seen running along a street on the outskirts of Wangarata Saturday evening. Police picked him up, questioned him for around five hours, and then released him to a relative. As the relative pulled their car out of the police station, Mark held up his middle finger to the waiting media in the street. Happy ending? Sure. I guess. Except this story is still one of the biggest mysteries that Australia has ever seen, at least in recent memory. The family has remained pretty quiet about the whole ordeal. Mitchell and Ella were interviewed after everyone was found safe and said that they still don't know why they all left, other than their father felt that they were in danger. Rihanna was later interviewed by Woman's Day magazine where she revealed that her father had been suffering from a mental breakdown, stating that, you have a few things, and they do build up. You can get sick in some way. A week after flashing the middle finger, Mark Tromp released a statement saying, Without reservation, I apologize for the hurt and concern caused by these events. Police, news reporters, and curious people alike all wanted a definitive reason for the family's decision to flee. They still haven't gotten closure almost five years later. A police sergeant named Mark Knight, who happened to be acquaintances with the family, ruled out drugs, bad debt, or any cult activity. There was also a theory put forward that the Tromps all suffered different levels of psychosis caused by chemicals used on their red currant farm. That was also ruled out. So what happened? The first part seems relatively understandable. A family fears for their lives and flees. But what followed wasn't fleeing the country or returning home together because they realized they made a mistake. 
No, what followed was catatonic states, agitated states, confusion, car theft by two people with no criminal history. None of it makes sense. Stress was obviously a factor, at least for the parents, but the only thing I've found that makes any sense is the possibility that the Trump family suffered from a very intriguing, rare, psychological condition called folly adieu. In French, folly adieu means madness of two. For a family like the Trumps, it would be called folly infamile, typically suffered by very close individuals or tightly knit families. It's sort of a collective delusion. Its origin comes from a 19th century French couple who began exhibiting paranoid and delusional behavior. Doctors were apparently unable to tell which of them had become psychotic first, but noticed they'd fallen into a loop of reinforcing each other's delusions. According to Wikipedia, other notable occurrences include the case of twin sisters Ursula and Sabina Erickson. In 2008, Ursula ran into the path of an oncoming truck and sustained severe injuries. Sabina then immediately duplicated her twin's actions by stepping into the path of an oncoming car. Both sisters survived the incident with severe but non-life-threatening injuries. When Sabina was released from the hospital, she behaved erratically before stabbing a man to death. Britain's Moore's murders, which took place between 1963 and 1965, involved a couple, Ian Brady and Myra Hindley. Brady was fascinated with Hitler and fascism, and Hindley somehow acquired his racist philosophy. Another case involved a 34-year-old married couple named Margaret and Michael. They both shared the same delusions that people were entering their house, spreading dust and fluff, and wearing down their shoes. Doctors called it an emotional contagion. The full reasons for the Trump family's meltdown might never be known, and the longer things remain unknown, the bigger the mystery gets. Before we get to mysterious Aussie story number two, I want to take a moment to thank Google. They're not a sponsor by any means, but they've helped me in easily converting kilometers into miles. I don't math so well. We move now from our most recent story to the oldest of the three tales. German explorer Frederick Wilhelm Ludwig Leichhardt, known publicly as Ludwig Leichhardt, was born on October 23, 1813. His family hailed from the Prussian province of Brandenburg, which is now considered the Federal Republic of Germany. Leichhardt was the sixth child born out of eight total. In his college years, between 1831 and 1836, Leichhardt studied philosophy, language, and natural sciences at two separate universities, but never graduated or received a degree. The following year, 1837, he moved to England and continued his studies in London and then Paris while also undertaking fieldwork in several European countries, including France, Italy, and Switzerland. In February of 1842, Leichhardt traveled to Sydney, Australia. From the moment he arrived, his goal was to really explore the Australian inlands, something that, at the time, hadn't been done with much success. By September of that year, he began quick, easily manageable geology studies and specimen sample collections. In August of 1844, Leichhardt left from Sydney on his first official expedition. He and six companions traveled for a month before adding four more members to their party. Two of the four turned back quickly, and one was murdered by aboriginals. 
The remaining eight continued on. The party had been given up for dead, so their December 1845 return to Sydney was met with awe and celebration. Leichhardt received government grants and numerous donations that would fund his next expedition. In 1847, his journals from the trek were published. Expedition number two started in December of 1846. His destination was Swan River and Perth. This one would not go as well as the first. In June of 1847, after covering around 500 miles, a fifth of the expected distance, the team was forced to return. Heavy rains, malaria, and famine were the big factors. Members of the party were close to mutiny after discovering that Leichhardt had forgotten to bring along a medical kit. Leichhardt is said to have suffered a nervous breakdown and became ill with malaria. His aboriginal guide took over as leader and guided them back home. I need to pause for a second and explain, for anyone that isn't familiar with the size of Australia. What Leichhardt hoped to accomplish was the equivalent of an expedition from New York to Los Angeles. He and his team basically trekked from New York to Columbus, Ohio, and then turned back around. After recovering from malaria, Leichhardt spent 1847 receiving prestigious medals from both the Paris Geographical Society for the most important geographic discovery and the Royal Geographical Society London, which awarded Leichhardt its Patron's Medal as recognition of the increased knowledge of the great continent of Australia. While he'd never get to wear the medals, he acknowledged them in one of his last known letters. I've had the pleasure of hearing that the Geographical Society in London has awarded me one of its medals, and that the Parisian Geographical Society has conferred a similar honor upon me. Naturally, I'm very pleased to think that such discerning authorities consider me worthy of such honor. But whatever I've done has never been for honor. I have worked for the sake of science and for nothing else. In early 1948, Leichhardt prepared for a second attempt at reaching Swan River. The party this time around consisted of Leichhardt, four Europeans, two Aboriginal guides named Womai and Billy Bombat, seven horses, 20 mules, and 50 bullocks, or ox as we would call them in the States. The last time anyone would see Leichhardt, the Europeans, Billy Bombat, or one of the ox was April 3, 1848. The expedition should have taken two to three years, but after no sign or word was received from Leichhardt, it was assumed that those in the party had died. The real mystery in all this is how many people have searched for a sign of Leichhardt's expedition and found practically nothing. Nary an oxbone or a Billy Bombat or a European friend of Leichhardt has ever been found. In 1852, the government of New South Wales funded a search expedition. All that turned up was a campsite with a nearby tree that had an L over the letters XVA carved into the trunk. Carving the letter into tree trunks was something Leichhardt was known to do in order to mark his path. Six years later, another search expedition was sent out. This resulted in one more tree with the letter L carved into the trunk. In 1864, two more L trees were discovered. In 1869, the government of Western Australia heard rumors of a place where the remains of horses and men killed by indigenous Australians could be seen. A search expedition was sent out, but nothing was found. In 1896, an expedition came across some aborigines who had among their possessions an iron tent peg, the lid of a tin matchbox, and part of the ironwork of a saddle. There was speculation that the items could have belonged to Leichhardt's party, 
but there was no way to be sure. In 1900, an Aboriginal man near Strut Creek in Western Australia found a partially burnt shotgun stuck in a boab tree, a tree which was engraved with the initial L. On the butt of the gun, there was a small brass plate with Ludwig Leichhardt, 1848, etched into it. It took until 2006 for Australian historians and scientists to authenticate the brass plate, which now resides at the National Museum of Australia. In 1975, a ranger named Zach Mathias photographed an Aboriginal cave. Inside the cave were paintings that showed white men with an animal. In 2003, a librarian found a letter that could offer a little more information on the mystery. Dated April 2, 1874, the letter, written by a W.P. Gordon, a man who'd met Leichhardt just days before he vanished, tells the following tale. Apparently, Gordon had moved to Wallambilla and befriended the Wallambilla tribe, who eventually began to share stories with the man. One detailed story referred to the death of a white man who was leading a party down a river when a large group of aboriginals encircled the party and murdered everyone in it. And that's it. Even with today's technology, explorers have never been able to find a trace of Ludwig Leichhardt, his party, or his animals. I haven't done any two-part episodes yet, and I hate to do it now, but story number three is so mysterious and so involved, I thought it should be its own episode. So our Australian friends get two episodes devoted to their mysterious continent, country, island. I think they deserve it. Please visit Curator135.com or find me on any of the socials. Just search Curator135. If you enjoy this podcast, please give it a five-star rating on whichever podcast service you use. It really helps. Until next time, which will be very soon, be good to one another and be creative. The world needs you. <laughs>